0: It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast where well, we are continuing our chat with Dr Melinda Hu about the stunning ancient city of Ihanum in eastern Afghanistan. This city which at its height was this royal centre of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. Now in this part of our chat, Melinda, who is an assistant professor at the University of Freiburg. She teaches ancient history at that university. We talk about religion at the city. We talk about burial, we talk about the tombs, and we also talk about globalization in the ancient world and how we can approach the city of Icnium with a globalization lens, particularly to answer the question as to whether we can label Icnium a Greek city in Afghanistan. So without further ado, here's Melinda. Melinda, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for
0: having me. You are very welcome indeed. I'm super, super, super excited. If we therefore move on to this other key monumental set of structures discovered at I Hanum, and these are the religious structures. Melinda, what religious structures do we have from I Hanum?
1: Yeah, so whereas Eichenum has been cited a lot and highlighted and praised a lot for its weird presence of theater and a gymnasium, it's actually the religious structure that I find most exciting. And this is also where you find, I think, the most diversity. So Eichenum had two temples. There was one temple outside the city walls. So when you approached the city from outside, from the plain of Eichenum, then you would cross this outside temple. This temple has not been extensively excavated because most attention of the excavators went to the main sanctuary in the middle of the city. And this may have been part of the so-called palatial district. This was the main sanctuary with the temple, the so-called temple with indented niches. Yeah, this temple has become very famous for its variety of cultural influences, but what is especially striking is that both of these temples and also a third religious structure, this open air podium on the Acropolis? These three structures are all distinctly non Greek in their architecture. So they have nothing in common with the architecture that we find from Greek temples in the Mediterranean. They also have been built or constructed from local mud brick. And they had more in common with Mesopotamian and Iranian temples, actually. So these temples, they were oriented to the rising sun. They all had flat roofs and they were built on a a very high stepped podium. These temples were also very massively closed off. So whereas in the Greek Mediterranean or in the the Mediterranean world, you have a lot of open temples with columns around it, which you can enter from all sides. But here at Aichenoum, the temples can only be entered from one side and it was really closed off with really, really thick walls. And these thick walls, they were whitewashed from the outside and also on the outside, they had these so-called indented niches. So there were kind of niches that were dug into the walls. And this is also where, of course, The name of the temple comes from the temple with indented niches. And of course, it should be emphasized that this final form of the temple, the temple with indented niches is the latest form. But throughout time, this temple had been rebuilt and reconstructed. And of course, this makes sense in the ancient practice of imperial investment of the kings. The kings very often they had to legitimize their rule in terms of investing in local buildings and investing in the local deities. And this can be seen in that same line that they had to invest and reconstruct these buildings uh, throughout time. So this is also what you see in this temple, that it received reconstructions, reparations over time, and also some adaptations in its layout.
0: That's really interesting to see how the building evolves over the time, over Ihanine's lifespan. And Melinda, No is an absolutely okay answer to answer this question, which I'm going to ask now, because it is. there might not be the archaeology there to really give a clear, definitive answer. But do we have any idea what deity might have been worshipped there? No. (laughs) (laughs) There we go.
1: Well, I mean, like, of course, there are some ideas, and this actually plays into a a huge debate on what kind of deity was honoured here. So there are from the cultic objects and the objects that were found inside the temple and around the sanctuary. There have been quite a lot of hypotheses that there might have been a Greek God honored here. And this is very much based on this very famous fragment of a foot a marble fragment, as I said, marble stone was, of course, not available, very much available in the region, so this was quite special. They found a marble fragment of a foot, and the foot wears a sandal, and the sandal has a thunderbolt on it. And this fragment of the foot was very much Greek in form and style, and therefore they kind of hypothesized, the excavators hypothesized, but also later scholars I agreed and disagreed, of course, there's a huge discussion about this, that this god may have been Zeus because of the thunderbolt. So Even though the architecture of the temple is distinctly non-Greek, scholars have theorized the possibility that the Greek inside the temple may have actually been a Greek god, maybe in some kind of hybrid mixed form mixed with a local god, Mithras, for instance, or Oxus, maybe there was a female god. So these were all kind of different hypotheses that were made. But especially this sandaled foot is a very strong trigger for interpretations to go to the more Greek side of history.
0: But it's not that simple, is it?
1: It's not that simple. No, absolutely not. Um, There are quite a wide variety of cultic objects or cult practices actually found. There were mud brick altars found. There were also limestone pedestals for burning offerings. They have found pieces of ivory furniture. They have found small circular Vessels that were locally produced, the so-called pixides. Uh, they have also been found in other sites in Bactria, such as at the Oxus Temple and at Tobolok in Tajikistan. They also found fragments of quite large clay sculptures and also plaster casts in the four chamber. They found a very famous silver plate with a depiction of the Anatolian goddess Kubelé. And this, of course, also led to the hypothesis that Kübele or maybe a a female goddess may have been honored here as well. They also found a small ivory figurine of a fertility goddess, quite in a different style. Definitely not a Greek style, but the excavators labeled it as Asiatic with a more strict style. So not as naturalistic as Greek sculptures. And also at the backside of the temple, there was a roll of libation vessels so to pour libations into the ground so this kind of indicates or suggests that there was just not one practice or not one form of worship and probably also not one deity that was worshipped here also in the latest phase of the temple's layout uh, you see indeed that there are three rooms actually so there's a bigger vestibule, and then there's a main cellar with two smaller side chapels. And of course this main temple was set in a larger sanctuary and now more recent work has been done on this larger sanctuary by Gloria Martinassev. and she recently published that there was also quite a lot of activity in the wider sanctuary. so there were at least two other chapels where people could worship and there were also some smaller rooms where food was stored, for instance, or uh, where food was prepared to give offerings to the gods.
0: Very, very interesting indeed. Now, I can tell why you find that building so fascinating, Melinda. And I'm going to go on to the last, last building type we're going to really talk about before we move on at Ai which are the tombs at Ai Melinda, what do we know about these buildings?
1: Yeah, so there is a famous so-called mausoleum. It has received the label of a heroon which is a building for the founder of the city. And there were actually two mausoleums within the city walls, or within the city center, actually within the palatial district. One of them was a stone vault mausoleum. This one didn't receive that much excavation, that much attention also in the publications, but most attention has gone to the so-called mausoleum of Kenyas. Together with the temples, the mausoleum was part of the earliest phases of the city. So as I said, the city was really built up in certain stages, and the first stage was really defined by the sanctuaries, including the mausoleum. And so the mausoleum, the building itself dates back to roughly the early third, maybe the mid third century BC, and in its earliest phase, this building it was very mixed in its layout as the excavators have identified quite a Greek ground plan, but then again, it was also on a stepped podium, what we also see in Mesopotamian temples, and it was also oriented towards the sun in the same way that we also see this at the main temple of Aichinum. The extraordinary thing is that some decades later, perhaps in the mid third century BC, we find an inscription. And this is one of the very few inscriptions, one of the few Greek inscriptions at Aichenoum. And this particular inscription has received quite a lot of attention in the scholarship, and particularly because of this very distinct link to the Greek world. So this inscription consists of two parts. One part was a paragraph of the so-called Delphic maxims, and these were life lessons that were set up in the Temple of Apollo in Delphi. And next to this small paragraph, there was another inscription. And this inscription says that a man named Clearchus set up these Delphic maxims, these wise sayings. He set them up from the Holy Pytho. So this is Delphi. He set them up here in the sanctuary of Kineos, blazing from afar. So this is also how we know that this mausoleum or this structure was dedicated to Kineas. And Kineas, this name was probably Macedonian or Thessalian. And this person was probably a very prominent citizen of Eichenum and has also been interpreted as the mythological founder of the city.
0: Ah, mythological founder indeed. Quite a little tangent by me, just a, a little trivial fact here. It's quite interesting, Melinda, that if he is possibly a Thessalian or a Thessalian, because I believe Alexander the Great, he disbands so like the smallest portion of his Thessalian cavalry when he's in ancient Afghanistan and Bactria. So I find that link really interesting. It's probably no link at all, but I'm just going to put that random fact out there for people to digest at their leisure.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a very small detail, and this is perhaps quite important, though a little bit small. This inscription that gained so much attention as really being one of the markers alongside the theater and the gymnasium, one of the more distinct markers of Greekness or a Greek identity, a small detail is that the stone of the inscription was actually reused later on as a pedestal, and the inscription was actually turned towards the wall. So in later times, it really seems that this inscription and perhaps even the whole connection with Delphi was not deemed as relevant anymore.
0: Ah, that is so interesting. Let's keep on that for a second because we interviewed not too long ago, Melinda, your good friend Lauren Morris, all about Begram and how she was saying that, we sometimes see these Hellenistic, these Greek objects at Begram much later on. But the original meaning of these objects seems to have disappeared, almost evaporated, not have been as important for the local people. So could it be that we see a similarity with Ihanum where they, the people later on, they see this object, but they don't value it the same way as it might have been previously?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's very important to contextualize hanum in this larger range of history. And we really have to keep in mind that the iconum existed for roughly 150 years. And so we talk about maybe five, six or seven generations even, if we take an average generation of maybe 20 or 30 years. And you can really question how much indeed of later generations still retains the original meaning, if there was ever an original meaning. And so this really plays into the question of what is Greek and what kind of people lived here? Were they actually Greeks if they were descendants of Greek settlers? Did they actually feel as Greek? Did they feel Greek in the same way as if you would feel Greek in the Mediterranean? So these are all kinds of questions that you have to keep in mind when you interpret these kind of mixed material culture with a strong Greek component.
0: Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever
1: you get your podcasts.
0: Absolutely, Melinda. Let's really delve into that now because I know you've done a lot of work around this subject. If we look at the older arguments, first of all, Melinda, what had people initially concluded about the ethnic makeup of Ihanum from the material culture, from the archaeology and architecture at the site?
1: Even though Ihanum is very much defined by its cultural diversity, so to speak, so you have indeed a lot of classically Greek buildings or buildings that are really recognized as strongly Greek, such as the Theatre and the gymnasium, of course, Aichinum is very much defined by a lot of Oriental, so to speak, Eastern architects as well. And despite this diversity, mainly scholars have focused on the Greek part of the Greek features and therefore also the Greek character of the city and interpreting it in terms of a maintenance and a preservation of Greek identity. So, really, this. Plays into the whole idea of Hellenism in the East. There's a quite significant debate, the so called Hellenization debate. What does it mean when cultures come into contact with each other, especially in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's conquest in the East? And what are the cultural dynamics that lay behind this? And for Eichenum, the excavators upon its discovery and upon its continuous excavation uh, they really brought the city to the public as an outpost of hellenism in the east and this is one of the initial interpretations of paul Bernard. he changed his opinion of course in later times to a more nuanced uh, but i can really imagine the excitement actually to find Greek characteristics in the urban landscape of Aichenoum, so far away from the Greek Mediterranean. And so I think the distance really instigated the emphasis on the Greek elements of the city. And so throughout time, actually, of course, there have been a lot of paradigm shifts in terms of interpretations of the city. And the interpretations of the city can really be seen in the longer historiography or longer history of writing about the impact of Hellenism in the East. And Hellenism is here defined as the spread of Greek culture in the East. And there have been long debates about how this actually took place, what it actually implied. And for Eichenum, a very strong interpretation that kind of had a very long afterlife was that this city would have been an outpost of Hellenism. It would have been a nucleus of Greek culture, of Greek civilization, where Greek settlers, they had to somehow survive, and they were in this kind of ethnic survival mode, and they really had to keep to their traditions. And the local patrons that were there, they had to Hellenize in order to get by. So in this very classic interpretation, Hellenism is really seen as an ethnic marker of identity. And so the Greek aspects of the city have been kind of aligned Mm -hmm. to this idea of an expression of Greek ethnicity by the inhabitants.
0: But Melinda, why is this approach flawed?
1: This approach is flawed, of course, because it really collapses a lot of different aspects of the city. And so, first of all, it collapses who rules the region. So we see this uh, definitely in the political context of the Greco-Bactrian kings and the Sulcate kings before them who minted coins with Greek inscriptions and with Greek iconography, etc. And so we see the greco bactrian kings, at least, we see these as Greek kings. And because it kind of overlaps in time, we kind of collapse political history with the cultural history of Eichenum. And so I think the question that should be brought to the front is the question who actually lived in Eichenum? Who peopled these settlements in general? So, we have indeed from Plutarch, who wrote, of course, his moral biography of Alexander the Great. We hear from Plutarch that Alexander the Great came here and that he brought civilization to these savages of Bactria. And although we know that this is kind of a moralizing biography, it did leave some kind of distinct imprint on how people have viewed and how people have interpreted these Greek aspects of the city. Mm-hmm. And so, I think this interpretation is very much flawed because there is this compartmentalization of culture. And so the presence of a Greek theater and the presence of a Greek gymnasium would necessarily mean that there were ethnic Greek settlers. And yes, there was definitely an undue focus to the Greek community at Aichenoum, even though there were many other elements of the city that were distinctly non-Greek such as the temples, of course. Scholars have mainly focused their attention on the Greek community at Eichdoum and thereby kind of disregarding all these other cultural elements of the city that kind of are indicators that there is a lot more cultural diversity and perhaps also ethnic diversity than we expect. A second problem is that we tend to look at material culture in ethnic and national categories. So if we talk about Greek features or Greek objects or Greek buildings, we kind of align this to an idea of Greekness as Greek people having one Greek culture and kind of adhering to this monolithic Greek idea of one Greek identity. And I think this is very much flawed, not only because, of course, we didn't have nations, we didn't have nation states, and ethnicity, of course, also worked differently in ancient times because we didn't have nation states and because culture moves much more dynamically and fluently and cultural influence, I think, moves much more independently from political structures, even though, of course, they are related and they are interconnected. But I think taking over certain cultural elements for different social purposes is definitely a possibility here.
0: So just because you have Greek style elements in the buildings to do with administration, let's say the palatial area, doesn't mean that the people themselves in that palatial area were Greek?
1: Absolutely. So you can adhere to a Greek lifestyle, perhaps, or what we would call a Greek lifestyle without necessarily being Greek. So I think Greekness or what we call Hellenism or taking over of Greek cultural elements may not necessarily be related to Greek ethnicity.
0: There we go and I guess it's the same as well if you're looking at let's say the house structure the structure of the houses these clear Mesopotamian Iranian or Bactrian elements once again it's not a reflection of the ethnicity it's just the sort of design which was preferred in this area of the world at that time.
1: Absolutely yes yeah. so even though these houses were recognized as distinctly non-Greek, of course, the people living there might well have been Greek or might well have been identified as Greek, but also the other way around. People who go to the theater or who participate in uh, activities in the gymnasium uh, may not necessarily be Greek, but they participate in a, a social activity for which indeed uh, Greek architecture is preferred.
0: Now, I'm going to ask a big, big question now. I know you've done a lot of work about it, but it's about this whole word globalisation, Melinda, in Central Asia. And the definition of globalisation in antiquity and how this can relate to what you've just talked about there, about this cultural mixing of elements.
1: Yes, that's a very big question, the definition of globalisation. And I think I want to answer this question in two ways. And the first way is to really look at the historiography in the sense of scholars always talk about the past in terms of frameworks of their own time. So we see in the early 20th century that the colonial paradigm, a colonial way of interpreting history was very much prevalent. Then this kind of changes throughout time after the period of decolonization from the 1950s onward, there's this emergence of a post-colonial paradigm, which kind of sets off against these very colonial interpretations of history. That being said, I also want to position myself as very much a scholar of this time. We, of course, live in a time that is defined by what we call globalization. And so increasingly, so scholarship has looked at uh, theoretical models, sociological models that look at globalization in a modern world but these theoretical models they can be very useful to look at the past as well and so there's a distinction between two things globalization as an object of research and secondly globalization as a method of research and i think the the promise of globalization lies in the latter so i'm not it really depends on how you define globalization whether this actually took place in ancient times there are a lot of studies at the moment that indeed claim that there was ancient globalization kind of try to search for parameters to prove that globalization was there in ancient times. But I think the merit of globalization is really as a method. And people have been using globalization or globalization theory as a lens to look at surges of increasing connectivity in the past. And so, if we take a more loose definition that kind of detaches globalization purely as a modern phenomenon, and if we use the more loose definition of globalization as social processes through which very distant localities become increasingly interconnected and also interdependent, then this kind of gives us a lens to look at broader processes that were going on in Eurasia and the Hellenistic period as well. And so I'm not saying that, okay, there was ancient globalization in the same way that we have as modern globalization, but I do think that the globalization approach allows us to take into account the wider context of increasing mobility and increasing connectivity across the Eurasian landmass. And this happens by efforts of empires that interact with different regions of the empires. You see, for instance, in the Hellenistic period, the emergence of the use of the same coin systems, production of coins, use of the same language, you see a shared artistic style, you see shared artistic techniques, there is a shared visual language and architectural language. So there are different ways that people can share across distance in certain ways of doing.
0: And is it within this framework, this globalization framework, that then you can approach is various cultural elements at sites like at Kaikhanoum and at other sites in Bactria through this fresh lens?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think previous interpretations have focused too much on Greek ethnicity or Greek identity as such. And really, we tend to think of Greek and Bactrian or Greek and local identities in a kind of fixed way which are then reflected in objects and buildings that would then have a singular meaning. With this globalization lens and with the wider context of connectivity and mobility, you also take into account the connectivity and mobility of ideas and of techniques without necessarily identifying wherever it may come from. And so I think that it is very important to keep in mind, and this is also what the globalization framework helps us with is that this cultural mixture that we see at Eichenum, it was not necessarily imposed, but it was also lived by people. And within the city, there were several ways to connect among each other. And instead of to focus on what kind of ethnic identity people had or how they expressed their identity and how they kept to Greek traditions, I think it's more productive to focus on clusters of social relations, or rather clusters of social life within the city that people moved in.
0: So, I mean, to wrap it all up, you've explained it all brilliantly there, Melinda, but if we should not therefore label Ihanum as this Greek polis, as let's say a Hellenistic outpost, how do you think we should view the settlement?
1: Yes, I think we should view the settlement firstly as a royal city, but it was not only a royal city only connected to the political culture. It was also a royal city that people lived in. And so instead of seeing this really as an outpost of Hellenism, I think we should really see this city as one where diverse peoples lived and where the people could connect and interact with each other in diverse ways. And that these practices that we see performed in the city were not only imperial, and also they were also not local, but they were more translocal in the sense that they had Wider connections to certain ways of doing across space, across the space of your Asia.
0: I'm just imagining now delegates going to that city from maybe like their Han China or the Indian subcontinent or further west or further north and being absolutely blown away from it. This one, and I guess another of these great crossroads of antiquity, a really, really astonishing sight. Melinda the chat we've had over the last hour or so has been absolutely awesome it's been really a long time coming it's great to have had you on the podcast to talk all about this and it all just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on today no problem Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe.